my name is Farah Osbeck, and welcome to Military Law Matters, the podcast that gives you insight into military law so you know your rights and you don't become a victim of injustice. Today, we'll be talking to Davis Jans, a lawyer who practices military criminal law and defends the rights of military members facing courts martial. Davis will discuss two cases where he defended military members charged with serious offenses, but he was able to advocate for his clients and convince the court members of its client's innocence. You will want to listen to this episode if you are facing a court-martial or if you want to learn more about the court-martial process. Good afternoon, Davis. So glad you could join us today on Military Law Matters, the podcast that serves the best listeners in the world, members and former members of the United States Armed Forces. How are you doing today, Davis? I'm doing well, and I just want to thank you for this opportunity. I think this podcast is a really good service to your listeners and a great opportunity to educate people on the military justice process. Thank you. Thank you, Davis. And I I appreciate you coming on the show and helping educate our listeners on some very important topics. So, Davis, as you know, we discussed before, it's our job to arm our listeners with knowledge so they don't become a victim of injustice. And I know that you are ready to arm our listeners with very important information today. And today, Davis Jans will focus on two courts martial cases where he served as a defense counsel for two military members. And he will really share and give our listeners some excellent insight into the court martial practice practice. David Sians is an experienced trial attorney who has dedicated his legal career to defending the rights of individuals facing criminal charges. Before joining Crisp and Associates Military Law, Mr. Jans served as an active duty Air Force judge advocate for 10 years and as a senior legal advisor for the Adjutant General of the, United, of the Pennsylvania National Guard. He currently serves as a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force Reserve. Mr. Jans has litigated more than 50 jury trials and represented hundreds of military members facing courts martial, Article 15s, and other military adverse actions. As a senior defense counsel, Mr. Jans consistently secured acquittals for military members charged with murder, sexual assault, child pornography, and drug crimes. His success led to him being named the number one senior defense counsel in the United States Air Force in 2011, which is quite an accomplishment. Davis, uh, you really have a very impressive record, and I'd really love for you to discuss a couple of cases where you served as a defense counsel for military members. And, you know, we discussed a little before the we got on air, and I know you had a client at Fort uh, Fort Riley in the Army, um, so who was charged with sexual assault. Can So can you start by talking a little bit about this case and what the charges were in that case, Davis? Sure. So this involved a, a young soldier who was part of an armored uh, infantry unit, and the <laughs> The cases arose from just sort of the natural uh, hazing and training process, and I use hazing probably inartfully because that's become a uh, a, a lightning rod um, in some of the branches of service right now. But but what would happen is these young soldiers were expected to learn a creed, a code that they would use in the unit, and there were things that they were supposed to know. And, and part of the training process was that uh, other soldiers would try to interrupt them as they're trying to memorize this document and memorize this statement, kind of like a reporting statement that they would have to say that emphasize the core values of the unit. And that's the context in which this case arose. As the sort of the the kidding around, the joking around, attempting to distract each other uh, progressed, um, my client um, and and another individual were, were going back and forth, joking back and forth. And it turned into blowing into each other's ears. People were getting smacked on the butt, all males. These are all males. Um, and, and it progressed from there. And out of it, my client ended up being um, charged with a 
Article 120 sexual assault offense for placing his generals on the leg of another soldier. Okay. So Article 120, um, so for the benefit of our listeners, um, can you tell what are the elements of Article 120? What must the government prove to show that someone committed that offense? Sure. So in the military, Article 120 refers to uh, sort of a now broadened group of sex crimes. So it covers everything from uh, rape, forcible rape, to sexual assault, to abusive uh, or wrongful sexual contact. So you have a range of different types of crimes. And in this case at Fort Riley, my client was charged with what's called abusive sexual contact. So the government had to prove that he uh, placed his genitals on uh, the body of another person with the intent to gratify his sexual desires or to abuse and humiliate the other person without that person's consent. And in my case, it's important to note that everyone was fully clothed. Everyone was in uniform and everyone was fully clothed. Okay. So, and the, the so-called, you know, alleged victim in this case was a fellow soldier who was also taking part in this uh, banter back and forth? He was, and that, that fellow soldier, we demonstrated a trial. He had uh, blown in the ear of my client, had um, rubbed his back, had placed his hands on his shoulders, had, had pushed him um, while it was my client's turn to read this, this uh, creed. Okay. And so was that the only charge in the case? It was. It was one charge and one specification of abusive sexual contact. Okay. And let me ask you this, Davis. As far as the this other soldier, did he make a st- – I'm assuming he made a written statement regarding this offense? He, he didn't initially. He actually spoke with his, his family and his father was a retired uh, military law enforcement investigator – and I guess he told his father something about what was going on or something about um, being given a hard time in the unit. It was actually his father who called um, Fort Riley, called uh, military investigators there. And that's what started the investigation. OK, so he then reluctantly then provided a statement where the government chose to charge this Article 120 specification. So so tell tell us what. um during the trial, in the beginning of the trial, did, did you go with court members or was it judge alone trial? So that's a that's a great question. You know, uh, military members who are facing court martial have uh, a lot of different choice to make, choices to make, uh, aside from just pleading guilty or not guilty. One of the important choices you have to make in the military system is whether or not you will demand trial um, by a jury which is in the military court martial panel or by a judge sitting alone. And military court martial panels are a little bit different um, than any other uh, jury panel that you'll see in the civilian system. First of all, it's made up of all military members. But the other thing is court martial panels in the military have a tremendous amount of authority. They can, they can ask for additional evidence. They can ask questions um, of the witnesses. And so they have a little bit more authority than a normal um, jury. And so what's one of the things that I really enjoy about military practice is you have a jury that is actively engaged and involved and, and wants to, to get to the heart of things. So uh, that's kind of a long winded way of explaining in this case, because of the nature of the charges, we we did go with a court martial panel. Um, and in a case like this, when, what we're asking 
uh, jurors to do is is take a common sense approach, certainly look at the facts, look at the law, but also take a common sense approach to the big picture and understanding what was going on and sort of the surrounding circumstances of this. This was a great case for a, a military jury, a court martial panel to get involved. And the other thing I'll say is, is anytime you have a situation like we do um, today uh, where there are some political sensitivities to the way ch- cases get charged and other things, uh, court martial panels are a great way to ensure that someone gets a fair trial a trial by people who are charged or given an order by the judge, given instructions to set aside any sort of command influence, any outside influence, and only focus on what's going on within the four corners of that courtroom. And um, I think it's a fantastic thing that we can depend on military members and trust military members on our panels to do just that. And time and time and again, I see them doing that, doing the right thing, trying to get to the right answer, um, and reaching verdicts that, that to me, almost without exception, usually make a lot of sense. Yeah, Davis, I know I, I served as a defense counsel, too, when I was in the Air Force. And I always now I know it's the client's choice. I was going to ask you that. Um, but for the benefit of our listeners, the client gets to choose whether it's he goes by he or she goes by military judge alone or by uh, court members, correct? That's correct. With the advice of counsel, I'm sure. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, well, we saw. So, but when I was a defense, uh, I was an area defense counsel. I, I, I don't, I don't think I ever went judge alone um, on a case. And I, I really did enjoy, uh, you know, being able to advocate for my client in front of court members who were, you know, military members, just like my client. So I, I agree with everything you said about that. So, um, so can you just walk us through the trial then? So they, the government pressed forward uh, the cases and was this a special, this was a general court martial, I'm assuming. It, it, it was, and that's that's fairly typical. If there's any uh, Article 120 type allegation, it's fairly typical that you'll see it go to a general court martial. So this was a general court martial, um, and it was uh, the government had about seven witnesses um, that they brought forward to testify as to the events that day. Um, the uh, the victim, um, the complaining witness in this case, uh, testified. He became more cooperative as it got close to trial, cooperative with the government. Um, so, you know, he came in and testified and um, we, uh, our defense centered around what was actually going on in the organization, what was going on as far as mutual horseplay, and then whether or not that mutual horseplay uh, gave rise to, you know, a reasonable inference of consent. So one of the things that we did with for the panel in that case is we tried to paint a picture of you know, different different sporting events, for example, where things happen that normally you wouldn't consent to. But in the context of, say, a football game, um, you don't charge someone with assault when they tackle someone else on the football field. And that's what we're able to show through many of the government witnesses um, in this case, that this was a situation where it was mutual horseplay, mutual joking around. And that's where this, you know, this touching over the clothes gave rise to clear indications of, of consent. Um, and, and that was sort of the, what we were able to show the panel as far as what was going on in this unit, in this organization. I think that was very helpful context for them. Yeah, that's, um, and I always tell, you know, clients or people I talk to, the facts and circumstances of our case are so important. It's not, you know, you might just read a charge, black and white, Article 120, sexual abusive, uh, abusive sexual con- uh, 
contact. However, when you actually are able to hear the facts and circumstances, just like in your client's case, I mean, it just paints a totally different picture. So I'm assuming you did a very good job of uh, explaining that to the court members. Um, Davis, did your client um, actually testify at this trial? He he did. And, and I will say, um, I for my military clients, I think I probably have them testify a lot more often than other attorneys do. I, I have this this instinct, this hunch that military court martial panels in particular want to hear um, from someone who's facing charges. They want to hear that testimony. So even though the system you know, protects the right to remain silent and, and even though the judge will instruct a panel, you know, you can't you can't make any adverse inference against an individual um, if they don't testify, it's it's always the client's choice. But I quite often I will have my my clients testify if they're willing to do so. And this is a case where um, this young man did want to testify. Um, he did testify and he was able to, you know, just explain again, paint context from his perspective, what was going on from his perspective. And in doing this, engaged in this sort of uh, not even really locker room activity, but this mutual horseplay, what his intent was at the time. And um, the court martial panel found that credible and he was fully acquitted. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Regarding testify, that is unusual. I mean, a lot of defense counsel advise their clients not to um, testify. So, but I, I guess it really depends on the client to how he or she might come off, you know, at, on the stand. And, um, but that's, uh, that, that's interesting that a lot of your clients testify, but it, again, I, I would, would you agree? It, obviously depends on the facts and the case. So it's not a black and white rule. You always testify, not testify. It depends on the case. <laughs> no, absolutely not. There, there are many, many cases where, where the client it wouldn't be in their best interest to testify. There's often uh, other, other circumstances, other charges, other things going on that would prevent that. And, and it really comes down to, to the client and their, their desire um, and their comfortableness with doing it, you know, being subjected to cross-examination in a military courtroom, being, you know, being questioned by a court-martial panel that could be composed of very senior-ranking members is a, a daunting proposition from anyone um, who's accused of a crime. But, you know, I, I think that it is, is important that attorneys don't get too caught up in, in the case and remember it's not about them. And I guess that's why I I encourage my clients that I think can can stand up well and that we can prepare for it to testify because it is really it's their life. It's their future that's on the line. And it's it's not about me as the attorney. If, if they want to testify and it makes sense, then then I'll get them ready to do it. And and uh, I, I like it when we can do that. And I think panels appreciate it. That's great. Yeah. And for, you know, the listeners out there, of course, if you're undergoing a court martial talk with your with your attorney. Um, but I do know from my practice and I'm sure Davis would, would agree that, you know, juries do not hold it against a member, you know, an accused as they call them, if they don't testify, but obviously if they do testify, it could certainly help the case. As, as Davis said, they get to actually hear the client, you know, discuss the allegation. So I'm sure it definitely helped in, in this case. So, Davis, is there anything regarding the – I've seen a lot of cases actually and dealt with some cases with the, this Article 120 offense, actually, and for cases involving, you know, allegations of abusive sexual contact. Um, are you seeing more of this? And is it um, – you know, are there other charges you think might be more appropriate instead of the 120 sexual um, offense charge? 
You know, that's that's really a great question. And I, I am seeing a, a trend. One of the trends that that I see, I, I think that's interesting is with uh, the new we call it the new Article 120, but with uh, abusive sexual contact charged as an Article 120 sexual offense. One of the things that comes along with that is is many people who are convicted of any 120 offense may end up having to be uh, register as a sex offender whether that's for 15, 25 or, or lifetime, that is a significant um, concern for anyone facing any kind of a charge under Article 120. And so uh, the states have to look at Article 120. They have to look at the, the military system and decide what type of registrant um, someone might be. And there's three tiers in that. So one of the things because of that, because of this this fear that individuals have of having to be a registered sex offender, um, look, the, the prosecution in the military knows that. So there's a lot of cases, I think, that that six, 10, 15 years ago may have been charged as a simple assault and Article 128 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice type case are now being charged as a, an Article 120 abuse of sexual contact. And, and the reason that's done then from the prosecution perspective is there are many military members who will who will plead guilty um, to a lesser included offense or the alternate offense of an Article 128 simple assault that wouldn't have pled guilty otherwise simply to avoid the risk of having to be uh, a registered sex offender. So just the specter or the fear of that Article 120 charge is leading to a lot more, I think, um, guilty pleas. And that's um, that's a significant trend that I've seen. Okay, try to see if they can... Uh... I guess it's my strategy by the government to see if they can get a PTA or some type of pretrial agreement, or as you said, pleading guilty to a lesser included offense. Um, but in your case, your client was outright convicted uh, of acquitted. He wasn't even convicted of the of one twenty eight, correct? C correct. And and uh, although after he was charged, one of the things that the government kept pushing for all the way up to the e eve of trial was a guilty plea to an Article one twenty eight um, assault. And that it was my client's decision. But um, throughout, my client maintained his innocence and and was willing to to risk um, conviction in order to uh, to have a trial. OK, well, very interesting, um, very interesting case. And you obviously did a great job for your clients. And this was a case where, yeah, in, in principle, the client wanted to you know, plead not guilty and, and the court members made the right decision. So did he, whatever ended up happening to him? Did he continue to, do you know, is he continuing to serve or in the military? Yeah. Yes, he is. Yeah. There were no, ultimately there were no adverse consequences to him. Once the, once the trial was resolved, he's uh, moved on PCS, uh, moved on to a new, new assignment and is, is still serving in the army. Fantastic. Is there just about, before we talk about your other case, uh, is there any other um, thing you'd like to add about this case that we might have missed that might be important for our listeners to know um, for if they're facing, you know, these type of charges or other charges, some takeaway to share with our listeners? Um, I guess what I would just would share as a takeaway is that um, it, in today's military environment, right or wrong, and, and we're not here to have a policy debate, but there are there are things that might have been considered in the past, uh, a joke or locker room behavior or things like that, that may have been part of military culture in the past um, and would have been handled at a very low level or just would have been seen as part of the culture. In many cases, 
Um, things like that are, are taken very, very seriously and individuals can be shocked to be, you know, end up sitting in front of a court martial. So what I would say is um, there are positive cultural changes that are happening in our, our military as far as the environment goes and as far as equal opportunity for people to serve. And those are good things. Um, but we're still in a bit of a time of change and a cultural change in the military as well. So I would just encourage people to be smart, to be fair um, in dealing with others and to you know treat others how, how you want to be treated. And that will keep you out of a lot of trouble. Great advice. Yeah, great advice. And as you know, the listeners may not may probably know this, but every case it's when it's a criminal case, it's U.S. versus it's not so it's not the alleged the victim. So, you know, victim may feel something happened, didn't happen. But in the end, the government uh, makes that choice whether they want to go to trial. Obviously, they need a cooperative um witness um, to testify, et cetera. So that is very good advice. Just, you know, be careful of what you do. You never know what the consequences are. So that was great advice. So, you know, um, Davis, why don't you, let's talk about the other case we had talked before this uh, recording. We had talked about you had representative a TI actually at Lackland Air Force Base. Can you tell us about this case? Sure. So this was, um, this is one of my favorite cases um, that I've had in my career and one of my, my favorite clients that I still keep in contact with on a regular basis. So in, in the Air Force, a, a TI, an MTI or a training instructor is those are the individuals that wear the Smokey the Bear black hats and are responsible for training Air Force recruits during basic training or, or boot camp for the Air Force. So I, my I had the opportunity to represent um, a, a TI at Lackland who was He'd been doing the job for about three years, and and frankly, on, on paper, and everyone agreed, he was a phenomenal training instructor. He had pushed honor flights, meaning the top-ranked flight for that graduating class, um, very successful in everything he'd done in the Air Force and gone through that whole process to become a TI, and he was um, very successful in that job. And there were a couple of things that happened at, at Lackland that led to circumstances where he could be charged with a crime. One of the things that happened is there had been some some allegations and some actual cases of TI abuse of, of trainees, be it sexual or physical. Um, there had been some substantiated cases and some court martials um, related to that. So there was a heightened sense of scrutiny on everything that was going on in the um, TI world. The commander of the squadron that my client was a part of um, had decided that for a 60-day period, the TIs in that squadron were not going to be allowed to use um, calisthenics, so push-ups, sit-ups, flutter kicks, as a group punishment. So tradition in the military and in the Air Force is, you know, somebody in the in the flight that is the group of trainees messes up, then everybody, you know, gets on the ground and does push-ups or sit-ups or flutter kicks or another form of exercise as a group punishment. Well, this commander decided that for 60 days, uh, TIs were not going to be allowed to do that. He was afraid some of his TIs were abusing it. So my client, um, and he readily admitted this from the beginning, um, failed to follow that lawful order. He continued, even though he was told not to, continued to have his trainees do push-ups, sit-ups, and flutter kicks as group punishment, even when that moratorium was in place. And so what happened was um, one of the trainees in his flight made a statement about being forced to do this in violation of this order. And that started an investigation. And within about a 24 hour period, um, 
30 trainees came forward with all kinds of an alle- of allegations of abuse by by my client and he was removed from training and put in sort of a, an administrative hold status um, and within a couple of weeks was charged with essentially 22 specifications, 22 different charges of physical assault, um, cruelty and maltreatment and disobeying a lawful order. Wow. Out of the one, one allegation, <laughs> 20, 22 additional, 21 additional charges came up from, uh, now the, this was not in any way related to a sexual type of, uh, charge. you know, we see that in the air force times about the sexual type allegations against TIs, correct? Correct. There was no, there was never a sexual um, connotation or any allegations of any sort of um, sexual assault, sexual abuse, or, or anything like like that in this case. So, can you generally? You said assault. Like, what type of allegations were the assault um, by the trainees? <laughs> there were there were several different ones. One trainee alleged that while he was doing push-ups, my client had placed a boot on his back. And pushed down, so that would be that would be an assault. That would be a physical assault. There was an allegation that my client had taken a a dummy rifle, so it's just a rubber rifle that they use. It looks like an M16 that they use in training, and and placed it up under his chin. Uh, one thing that was charged as an allegation of assault was my allegedly my client taking a canteen, um, holding it to a trainee's mouth and forcing him to drink. So again, those were all allegations, but those were the type of assaults for the most part okay. that, that were charged. Okay. And this was, I'm assuming it's a general court martial as well. This one actually ended up as a special court martial. Oh, okay. Special court martial. And just, can you just for the listeners uh, say, can you explain the difference between a special and general court martial? Sure. Uh, generally speaking, if you're facing charges in the military, it will be uh, you'll be in front of what's called a special court martial or a general court martial. A general court martial is the most severe um, form uh, forum for resolving military charges. All punishments that are authorized by the Uniform Code of Military Justice, including death or life in prison without the possibility of parole, are authorized at a general court martial, again, depending on the charges. The a special court martial um, th- those familiar with the civilian system might think of it more as like the misdemeanor level in a way because the maximum punishment authorized at a special court martial is one year of confinement and a bad conduct discharge. Aside from the that that limitation on punishment from a special court martial, you're also you also have a smaller number of court martial panel members or jurors. So you can have as few as three. Um, panel members in a special court martial, so only three jurors. A general court martial, there has to be a minimum of five. Okay, so so at the special court martial, let's start with. Uh, did you did your client choose to go with a judge alone or court members for this case? Uh, again, and this this was a case where based on everything that was going on in the circumstances, the client felt most comfortable with um, going with a court martial panel. So that's what we did. It was a panel of of all officers. So it was, um, ended up being five officers. And I, I, I specify officers in this case, because one of the other choices that a military member has is they can, if they're enlisted, um, they can have a panel that is made up of at least one third enlisted members, um, or the traditional officer panel. In this case, the client elected to go with 
with an officer panel. Okay. Thanks for adding that. That's right. Um, yeah. The member does have a choice to add that, but he, so he chose to go just with officers. Okay. So you had officer court members. So let's start with, did your um, client, did he take the stand in this case? So one of the interesting things that, that we did in this case, and it was one of the interesting decisions my client had to make was he had admitted from the beginning and, and we knew he had violated a lawful order. His commander had given an order not to use group, you know, group punishment. Um, and he knew he had done that. So one of the questions is, do you, do you plead guilty to that or, or do you still litigate that charge? In this case, we decided, my client decided that, that he would plead not guilty to that charge, but he did take the stand and testify. And so if you can imagine, picture yourself um, in the courtroom um, at Lackland Air Force Base. It's a small courtroom there. And this uh, this client was a military training instructor. So you can picture someone who has um, the most most appropriate, shortest haircut, wears the uniform impeccably, um, ribbons, you know, gleaming on his chest. He took the stand and I, I simply ask him, you know, uh, Charge one, specification one, alleges that you violated a lawful order. Did you violate a lawful order? And his answer was, yes, sir. So the first thing he did on the stand was admit to having violated that lawful order. And then I proceeded to ask him about the remaining 21 charges and specifications. And to every one, he simply said, I asked him, did you do this? And his response was, no, sir. So I think it was very powerful for him and very powerful for the panel to understand, look, he's coming in accepting responsibility and admitting um, to what he did wrong, but that doesn't mean he committed all the other offenses. And so even with that, he, that's what he wanted to do. That's what he chose to do. He wanted to take, you know, take responsibility for it. He didn't want a pretrial agreement or anything else. He wanted the panel members to know everything and accept responsibility for it. And from a trial strategy standpoint, I think that was the right decision um, because I think it made him inherently credible. Um, when he was talking to the members about what actually happened. Oh, that's, I, I don't think I've ever heard of a case like that. That's a very interesting strategy. Did you, when he did say he violated the lawful order, did he, did you then ask him questions where he got to explain why he perhaps made that decision to explain the facts and circumstances a little bit more? Or did, did he just, you know, did you then move on to the next offense? We, we first moved on to the next offense and went through it. And then we came back to it and explained a little more. But he really, I mean, you know, bottom line from his perspective, and, and I agreed, was there were reasons. The reasons were not great, though. They weren't an excuse to what he had done. They were that he'd always done it this way. He'd been very successful doing it this way, and he was too stubborn to change. So, <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that's, that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't change the, the reality of, of, of what he did. So that, that was the approach. But it wasn't a, it, it, at least it, he got to explain to them that it wasn't a malicious type of intent. It was, this is how I've been doing it. And I've been, you know, winning honor flights or whatever, whatever the terminology is. So, I mean, I get, they still got to hear him explain that. I think that's so important in courts for the members just to, to see all the facts. It's not, as I said, I love to say, it's not black and white, like on the charge. You got to know the facts and circumstances. So that seemed to have worked well. So when he then went on to answer all the other questions saying he didn't, how did that work on cross? So the prosecutor, when he, he or she crossed your client, how did that end up working? Uh, you know, it, it, it was interesting. Um, it was one of the most unique cross examinations I've ever seen because, you know, this, again, this, this, 
this military member was was very squared away, very precise. And, and he was I mean, he's the kind of person that you picture. This is who I want to be a training instructor in the military and in the Air Force. So it was a cross examination where he didn't he didn't mince words. I mean, it was yes, sir. No, sir. No, sir. That that didn't happen. No, sir. That's not what happened. No, sir. So it was very it was very precise and to the point. And and frankly, that was the kind of client that's going to stand up well to cross examination. Um, and and what became clear as the trial went on, the government called about 30 witnesses. But what what became clear was the the trainees, when they made their initial statements in the investigation, they wrote them down. They weren't asked a lot of clarifying questions and they were in their third week of training. And I find that's very significant to know what week of training individuals are in any military training program, because every military training program is essentially the same pattern. You start with a breaking down period and then that breeds into, you know, uh, forming discipline and and teamwork. And then you have a building up period and Air Force um, military training at the time. The third week is sort of the last really, really difficult week in the breaking down stage. So you were taking these trainees, pulling them out of a flight and asking them about their TI um, during the worst week of basic military training. And during that week of military training, traditionally, uh, the, the trainees believe that their TI is the toughest, meanest, most horrible individual on the planet, um, out to kill them all, hates them all. And, uh, you know, they they have no love for their instructor. And yet often within several weeks or by the time they get to graduation at, at eight weeks, um, they they can't wait to shake their training instructor's hand and, you know, send them emails as they progress in their career about how well things are going. So so that, I think that was really a part of it. There was this sort of an hysteria that was bred, um, you know, in some respects, these trainees were afraid of their TI, which is a very common thing. Um, Fortunately, for a lot of the alleged assaults, there were there were uh, trainees from other flights that weren't part of this flight that were present. So this was a male flight and there were um, trainees from another flight that were females that were there. And so we called many of them as defense witnesses as part of our investigation to say, no, that that never happened. I was there. I never saw that happen. That's not what went down. That's at best an exaggeration or a complete you know, fabrication of what actually happened. So. Um, there was a lot to learn in this case. I learned a lot about, um, you know, basic training and just sort of the mindset of individuals in that environment and the importance of pretrial investigation and going out and, and hitting the streets and interviewing witnesses as well. That, yeah, that is, that's a great, so 30 witnesses, I'm assuming you did some great cross-examination of these witnesses, <laughs> considering out of all these specifications that he, he was acquitted of all of the specifications, except the one he admitted to. Right. And and interestingly, you know, there there are a lot of different ways to approach a cross-examination. With many of these witnesses, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a bulldog cross where you're yelling and screaming and pointing and pounding at the table. M- many of them, frankly, once you pose the questions the right way, were much less upset, much less fearful, much less angry than they had been during their third week of training when they wrote their their original statement. And I think many of them were almost turned into we were able to almost turn into favorable witnesses about some of the events if if not the charge involving themselves some of the some of the government's witnesses turned into witnesses for us um, as to the other charges because again 
by the time they got to the end of, of basic training, they had a different perspective on their TI. They had a different perspective on why he was tough on them and why they perceived it that way. So uh, a lot to learn from that case for sure. Well, I, I, I imagine the government learned a lot from this case too, of uh, not rushing to these, you know, a court like this, because I learned something new too, when you talked about, you know, I didn't go to basic training as a, came in as a Jack. So, um, you know, learning about the different uh, phases of that, that that's very, that's very interesting, uh, puts a good perspective that I'm sure the court members, um, well, obviously they, they believed your clients and very interesting. Let me ask you, so did your client, when he was initially called in before it went to court, did he actually make a statement? You know, in, in this case, he, he did. So and that's a great point to, to bring up. But in this case, he did. He 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 chose to make a statement. Um, and, um, you know, so that that statement was out there. Frankly, th- this client would have never I mean, it wouldn't have made a difference in his game plan and what he would have wanted to do a trial from the beginning anyway. But he, he did make a statement and he did confess to violating the lawful order from the beginning. And he denied the other accusations. Oh, well, maybe those accusations weren't out there when he was first called in. Uh, Many of them were not. Many of them were not. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, and I guess it depends. I mean, I always, you know, I write little blog articles and always, you know, tell people if you're, I don't care if you're 100% innocent, don't make a statement. (laughs) Go talk to a lawyer first. Then (laughs) Then you could, you know, perhaps make a statement. But you just, you know, when you're just surprised and called in and then, you know, asked questions. So I, I don't know. For listeners out there, do you, Davis, I mean, you're certainly an expert in this. Do you have any like general advice on that? What would would your advice be the same? It, it would be the same. And there, there's a lot of reasons for it. And some of them are very, very practical. But, you know, I, I don't care who you are, uh, whether or not you're you're completely innocent. When you're talking to to law enforcement, especially military law enforcement or the chain of command, you will be nervous. You will be uh, scared. You will understand there are significant um, negative outcomes potentially for your career and other things based on this situation. So, you know, there's a reason why I, I, I studied this a little bit when it comes to uh, police shootings. You know, if there's an, a police officer that's involved in a shooting, the, the number one advice that they're always given and they're always given by their union representatives is, don't make any statements to anyone for at least 72 hours um, until after everything has died down. And and the reason for that is, is just, you know, nerves and how the human memory works. So if you're nervous and you're upset and you're being called in by law enforcement, especially if you're surprised by it because you're innocent, you haven't done anything wrong. Why are they bringing me into, you know, uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigations or Army Criminal Investigation Divisions. Why are they knocking on my door? Why are they calling me in? You will be nervous. You will be upset. There's a tendency in that environment to to not have the best memory, to not have the best recall, to say things inartfully um, and to make mistakes that could be taken out of context. And and I will say that that often there are very, very good investigators in the military and there's some that are, are not as good and not as experienced. And and often they have one goal in mind, which is to get some sort of a confession um, so they can close out the case and move on. So it is rarely, um, if ever, in your best interest to make a statement to law enforcement without first speaking with an attorney um, and trying to take a breath, take a pause and understand what's going on first. 
Okay, so there you hear it from a, a great defense counsel as well. If you read your Article 31 rights, really, you know, whether you're 100% innocent or guilt, it doesn't matter, ask for an attorney, then talk to an attorney and figure out a way if you want to make a statement. But uh, that's, um, yeah, definitely concur with that. So remember that for the listeners out there. So Davis, you had after this, um, you know, the acquittal of all these charges, except the one that which he like basically agreed, you know, pled guilty to on the stand. What what was his sentence? So he was given a sentence that was uh, hard labor without confinement. So essentially two weeks or 14 days of, of hard labor without confinement. That's what the court martial panel. That's essentially what we asked the court martial panel to do and, and what they did. And and the, the great news story at the end of this case is in the military, depending on what charges you are convicted of, the convening authority has broad um, authority in clemency. So after the trial is over, you have a right to submit matters to the convening authority and they can reduce um, portions of your sentence. And de- again, depending on the type of charges you're convicted of, they can set aside um, the findings of the court. So in this case, the, con- the convening authority had the authority in the clemency process to set aside the conviction and replace it with non-judicial punishment. So that's what we asked for. And that's what the, the wing commander at Lackland at the time did. He set aside the conviction, turned it into a non-judicial punishment action, turned 14 days hard labor without confinement into 14 days of extra duty. Um, And so once that was done and served, um, my client moved on from being a TI. PCS has since promoted um, and is still serving and will do 20 plus years in the Air Force. Wow. Fantastic. What uh, what rank was your client at the time? He was uh, an an E6, a tech sergeant. Okay. And I, I really, um, you know, I, I give that wing commander a lot of credit and you know, probably advice of the SJA for setting aside the conviction because it, you know, after all those, uh, you know, not guilty verdicts for all those offenses, it would have, I, I think, been such, so fundamentally unfair for him to have a conviction for the one violation. So, you know, that, that, that was a great result. And I'm glad the commander did that. You know, a lot of commanders might, you know, be concerned about setting aside convictions, et cetera, with everything going on. Um, I guess it depends on the type of case, but you know, the fact that he did that, that's, that is great testament to the, you know, the fairness of that process and, and your great, you know, advocacy, not only during the trial, but after to make sure that conviction was set aside, because I was going to ask you about that. Like if he, you know, after all those, you know, not guilty verdicts, still having a conviction would have been a really a tough thing to always have to say, I have a conviction and he could have perhaps been, you know, administratively discharged after the fact. So that ended up to be a great result. It was an article 15 offense in, in effect. Um, if that even, if, you know, I guess it could be a 15. Res- so, um, your, your client was, I'm sure very, very happy with the end results. <laughs> you know, that again, that that's a, a good news story and, and cases like that are why I enjoy what I do and why I believe, um, you know, you can get great outcomes and just results in the military process. Mm-hmm. And it helps having a, you know, good defense. You know, defense attorneys are very conscientious, but, you know, it varies from attorney to attorney. So, so in that case, do you have a little takeaway just based on that case or any advice you would give our listeners as far as... Uh, you know, that case or what you learned maybe to pass on to our military listeners? Well, you know, you learn a lot of things from every case. And in that case, I think it is, you know, the biggest takeaway is pretrial investigations are really, really important. And, And a big thing is, and any good lawyer knows this, you know, you have to go to the scene of the crime, you have to get out, you have to learn in the military, you have to learn 
about the, you know, if it's Army, the, the MOS, if it's the Air Force, the AFSC of, of the military member and know a little bit about the environment and the culture so you can see it and understand it. That's just critically important to knowing that. So, you know, the, the, the young Jags out there, the new Jags out there that are trying cases, they, they need to get out of their office. They need to get around the base. They need to learn what people do um, in other organizations. And, and it's the same for, for any of us, any Jags, even with more time. If it's something we're not familiar with, we have to get out there, do a, do a thorough pretrial investigation and learn, learn about those career fields and learn what people do. Okay. Yeah. Very good advice. So Davis, you, I mean, you had such a successful career in the Air Force and I, as a, you know, as really as a defense counsel and as a, ju- a judge advocate in general, and you still are Air Force reservist as I highlighted in the beginning, but you now work at a private law firm. Um, so, and you have a lot of military clients as well now as a civilian lawyer. Can you tell us just a little bit about, do you do the similar type cases concentrating on courts martial and, um, mostly military clients, or if you'd like to add a little bit about your practice. Sure. So I, I, I have a, a great opportunity after I left active duty, I actually worked full-time for the Pennsylvania national guard for two years as the senior full-time attorney there. Um, and I worked in a joint force headquarters for, for the army primarily. That was a big part of my workload. So that was a great experience for, for me. And during my time in the Pennsylvania national guard, I, I met another attorney uh, in the guard um, a traditional guardsman named Jonathan Crisp. He's a former active duty Army JAG. He was heavily involved in some in defending some of the individuals involved in Abu Ghraib. Um, but anyway, he and I started talking and he had about eight years prior had started a law firm where he focused on um, military law, military criminal defense. So he and I started talking and a short time after that, he recruited me to be a part of this firm. So I, I work for a, a small firm. We have five attorneys. I focus uh, probably about 80 5% of my time is on military law, um, primarily courts martial. Um, I do some other administrative things, responding to non-judicial punishment actions and things like that. And then if I'm not doing military cases, I do um, some uh, state court and federal cases. I try to really focus on felony level things that are actually going to go to trial. I don't do a lot of guilty pleas or anything else. It's just not not what I prefer to do. Okay. And, and you're in Pennsylvania, but your military court clients are all over the world, right? I mean, you don't, a a client does not have to be in Pennsylvania to hire you since you practice, you know, federal law, correct? Are your clients all over the world? Correct. Uh, Clients are all over the world. I I currently have clients in, uh, throughout Europe and in Asia. Um, And since I've been doing this in the last two years, I've had cases in uh, Korea, Japan, Germany, um, Italy, really all over the world. Okay. Okay. And so what's, if there's some listeners out there, they may need your help. How would, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, best way is they can, they can check out our website for our firm, which is mymilitarylawyers.com. It's mymilitarylawyers.com. They can also call me. Um, I have no problem if military members or family members have questions about the process, they can always call me at 717-412-4676. 717-412-4676. Okay, Davis. Wow, these were some really interesting cases, and it's it's very obvious. You were a very talented defense attorney, very conscientious, and you got great results for your clients. So, And thank you so much for taking your time to share these uh, courts uh, you know, the lessons and, and the stories of how you were able to represent your clients very well and get great results. And, and hopefully our 
listeners, you know, learned a little bit more about the military justice process and the importance of having a really a good defense attorney on their team. So um, thanks again, Davis. And I, I really hope to have you back on the show. I'm sure you'll have some more interesting cases. Maybe you'd like you'd be able to share with us and, and teach uh, a little bit and arm our audience with more knowledge. So thanks so much, Davis. And I hope to uh, be in touch with you again. Great. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for listening today. If you want to learn more about military law topics so you're armed with knowledge, subscribe to my podcast. Head over to our website, militarylawmatters.com. And if you have a problem I can help you with or topics you'd like to learn more about, send me an email at info at militarylawmatters.com. And if you know someone who this podcast may help, please share it with them. The takeaway today is the importance of having a good defense attorney who's willing to fight for your rights. While the government may charge you with more than 20 charges, a good defense counsel can help the court members see what is really happening in a case through the examination of the defense witnesses and also through the cross-examination of the government's own witnesses. Until next week, stay well and never ever give up because there is always hope.